Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I am so glad you are here. It means so much to me that people all over the world are kind of connecting to this podcast. And look, we know this is a tough time for people to be serving in ministry leadership positions around the world. Nevertheless, like I'm really thankful for the opportunity to come and serve the people who listen to this podcast on a regular basis. I have a great show for you. One of my reoccurring guests is here, and I'll tell you about him in just a minute. But you need to know, the More to the Story podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And that happens through a range of programs from bachelor's to master's to doctoral programs, in addition to several lay initiatives that you can find out about at our website, wbs.edu, wesleybiblicalseminary.edu. And secondly, I'm thankful to my friend, Bill Roberts, for being a sponsor of this podcast since its inception. He comes alongside people and helps them plan for their future financial lives through their retirement and savings plans and all kinds of things. He's particularly good at helping people who are ministry positions to think through all the details and challenges that it that come with having a housing allowance and that type of thing. So I encourage you to check out Bill Roberts at williamhroberts.com. There's a link in my show notes to him. And finally, I want you to sign up for my email list. Would you do that? In any of your watchings on YouTube, would you hit that heart or whatever it is to follow or like? Uh, same thing on social media, but my email list is a way that I send information, sometimes like deals for people as well, uh, andymillerthethird.com. And I give folks, if you sign up for my email list, um, a free tool, it's like a mini course on learning to exegete scripture in a way that prepares you for proclaiming it. It's called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. And there's a 45-minute video teaching and an eight-page PDF document that you can use to help you get ready to present God's word to congregations and classrooms. We'd love to be, I'd love to get that to you. So check that out at andymillerthethird.com and sign up for my email list there. All right. I am glad to welcome into the podcast one of my good friends, Steve. Bussy, who's coming to us from the Salvation Army's Eastern Territorial Headquarters in Suffern, New York. Is that where it is? West Suffern? Uh, West Nyack, New York. Nyack. Oh, the train school's there. Okay. That's right. Welcome, Steve. It's good to see you. Uh, it's good to be back, Andy. And we always appreciate all the great work that you're doing for the Wesleyan world, you know, connecting people together. And uh, it's always good to have a great con conversation with you. Yeah, well, it's fun because I, lo I love the way that obviously you and I come from a similar tradition in the Salvation Army, which is one of these evangelical Wesleyan denominations. At the same time, like you've been emphasizing a lot lately in the things you've been putting out, um, the kind of broader connections of the Wesleyan holiness tradition. So like, what, what would you tell me some of that? Like what's been intriguing to you? A lot of Salvation Army people just like to stick with Salvation Army stuff. Yeah, well, I, th I think, you know, again, when we look at the world that we're living in, and I mean, this is true, not just of the Salvation Army, but I think it's probably true of most of the denominations of those who are listening to this podcast, is that we seem to be in a culture in which we've shifted from theological language to therapeutic language. Along yeah. with that, we see that the sort of overarching discipleship has has reduced significantly. And, and discipleship has sort of, you know, again, we... Uh, you know, I grew up, you know, in the 70s and 80s and stuff like that, you know, where youth group was about having fun and games, things like that. And yet now we're in a world which has radically shifted um, from from being dominantly, a, you know, driven by a Christian worldview to 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 no longer really that being dominant. And with right. that, um, I think a lot of us can find ourselves adrift and need to go back to the rock from which we're hewn. Uh, yes. I think I think the difficulty with that is that that those who are going back, if we only have a very sort of thin understanding of our discipleship process, um, that's not going to be robust enough to handle sort of the waves 
that we're facing. Right. And so to go deeper leads you back to some of those primary sources that have not just shaped the Salvation Army like William and Catherine Booth, but those who have shaped William and Catherine Booth as well, which leads us back to Wesley. Yeah, and all of these denominations that, and, and not just denominations, parachurch church organizations, yep. just even, even movements around the world. I think about my friends who are in uh, WGM, OMS, so World Gospel Mission, which is now the One Missions, and then One Mission Society. These groups that come from this the same tradition, no matter what it is, generally it's like a subcategory of something that goes back backwards, and so it's helpful to understand some of these historical foundations and then okay a lot of that points as as like the seminary where i serve wesley biblical seminary points back to john wesley but i, I think it's helpful to keep in mind you know it's like john wesley is not the founder of christianity right yeah, and, and like <laughs> we, we look to wesley and william booth or whoever it is you know yes. we, we could list any any group of leaders as they point us to Jesus, right? Like Absolutely. That. Yeah, I think like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ, you yeah. know? We look to people who have embodied what it means to be a follower of Christ in a great way and who were able to demonstrate scaled impact in their generation. So obviously we look to scripture, the, the scripture way of salvation is what we're really looking for. Uh, but those who are going to help us to interpret that, uh, you know, I can't think of anybody better than a John Wesley out there. <laughs> yeah, well, so. we, we, it's not, not a bad one to line up with. Now, here's what's interesting. You and I had a conversation last fall that was a podcast we put out. I think it was like a live conversation conversation, responding to an international event in the Salvation Army. Now, I want all my friends who are United Methodist, Global Methodist, Free Methodist, Congregational Methodist, Nazarene and the like to hang in here because, I, as you know, I've had conversations lately. I think some, some are coming out around this. I have one coming out very soon with Bishop Scott Jones. We've had leaders of the Global Methodist Church. Um, I'm having a conversation with somebody who's in the Nazarene Church who has a, a group called the Holiness Partnership. Jared Henry is coming on here soon. And like I think it's very similar to the conversation you're, you and I are going to have about this particular denomination, the Salvation Army. And so I want to just keep everybody kind of attuned to the fact that the things Steve and I are going to talk about, about specifics within the Salvation Army, are happening at a denomination near you. <laughs> coming to a theater near you, you, this is what's happening. So just be aware, like as we're working through this, and you and I talked about uh, the general of the Salvation Army, the international leader of the Salvation Army, put together like some really clear statements mm -hmm. about orthodoxy and human sexuality uh, sometime this past fall, I think it was September. And at that event too, there was another presentation and some of those documents have been produced until we've been able to access access some of that. And Steve, you are really encouraged by what you read there. Is that right? Yeah. On, on the, actually, the Savage Army's international uh, headquarters news site, yeah. Um, it was available to the general public, so you could go take a look at that. Maybe we, I can give you the link for the show notes as well. Yeah, we'll in there. Um, yeah. But but uh, Commissioner uh, Commissioners Ted and Debbie Horwood um, uh, presented um, a, a very, very interesting paper that was reported on there that talked about um, how does new wine work in, in uh, new wineskins and sort of asking this question of what is the future of, of, of our denomination, of this movement, and really sort of what are the non-negotiables? What are the things that we cannot, right. in the midst of a rapidly changing world, not let go of as well? 
Yeah, interesting. And and this it, it's interesting. I'm not sure if this happens in other denominations. That word uh, non-negotiables uh, comes out up quite a bit because we need to think about the necessity for changing. And of course, the very history of our tradition of the Salvation Army is based upon radical change mm -hmm. in the 19th century, like a completely new approach to how the church is to operate. And so if you look at the early documents of the Salvation Army, it is like, let's get some new forms like like let's make sure that we're not just like putting ourselves into old patterns that aren't productive so naturally we come to this place of still thinking that we've become an, a group that's existed now for more than 150 years so how do we kind of define the essence of that group and so often it comes up through these non-negotiables and so i think this was a, a, a powerful presentation and i think what we'll do is we'll just like kind of walk through some of that now there will there were several points and let's just let's just go through those. see what's the first one can i just say one thing before before yeah. we get into the details of that just just to reinforce your point as well, and why this applies to to some of our other friends in in parachurch and other denominations, yeah, is yeah. that uh, so? So I, I work in the field of strategy for the Salvation Army, and and I look at at denominational strategy, nonprofit strategy, but also corporate strategy. And in corporate strategy, there's something what they call understanding the transcendent purpose of the organization. You know, if you read like a Simon Sinek who talks about starting with your why, know what your why yeah, is. Yeah. You Jim Collins and Jerry Porras, you know, built to last. I talk about that. But it's a very, very important thing that an organization needs to know what that transcendent purpose is. And, and I think as Christians, we need to have that North Star. Those, you know, you know, we have to understand why we exist. Right. And then and then I would say, you know, again, rooted in the Bible, the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, things like that, that we know. But then along with that, um, as a denomination for us as well, what are the things that define the boundaries of a, of a people that have been knit together globally and historically? Um, what is it that unites us together? There has to be some common elements. And so so I think that those non-negotiables non are the glue that holds us together. And if we don't have clarity on, uh, on what those are and intentionality in reinforcing and protecting those, then we quickly, quickly unravel. And that's true, I think, of any any organization. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I and any group needs to think through this, just like you just said. So it's a helpful tool. And, and like, maybe if we can lay this foundation, then we have a better perspective going forward. Um, and, yeah. and of course, establishing these type of things, I think are critical. We'll hopefully we'll get to talk about this at some point. But this year in the Salvation Army, it, this summer will likely be a high council where a new international leader is elected. And I think this is a good time to be thinking through and for leaders and to be praying for leaders as they think through this. But let's go through. So they had do they have nine non-negotiables that they, they, they developed? Yeah, yeah. Just to let you know, at first they talked about like sort of what they call the balanced stool, balanced stool of the Salvation Army. The fact that, you know, to using Gowan's term now, Gowan's wasn't the person who came up with this. He just poetically sort of codified it, that we were called to save souls, grow saints, and serve suffering humanity. And just talking about how just like a three-legged stool, you can't have one leg you know, sort of right, bigger right. than the other and stuff like that, that we need to make sure that we're taking care of each of those. And so that sort of led into this discussion of these sort of what, what they said as non-negotiable. So um, do you want me to read them all out first? Or you just want to sort of take them one at a time? Well, let's go one at a time, friends. And let me, let me throw, there's an interesting article. You might know it's a Canadian and you, I know you're an American citizen now, yeah. of course, but uh, uh, R.G. Moyles. Uh, maybe I'm saying his name wrong, but he wrote the Blood and Fire, the History of the Salvation Army in Canada. Yep. 
He has several other pieces. He has this interesting piece where, uh, from a historian's perspective, he critiques the uh, Gowan's idea. Now, uh, so he he says, suggests that the three-legged stool, the balanced stool, isn't historically correct. And I, I think that's right in, in the sense that you have uh, saving souls, growing saints, and serving suffering humanity. Okay, I love that for now, right? But that wasn't necessarily a part of the early vision, okay? Like this wasn't clearly articulated at the beginning. It was more or less like um, saving souls. Number and, and, and certainly there was a sense of... Uh, um, growing saints was there, but it was a little shaky that that was really a part of the, con the, the, the conversation at the beginning, but in the first 15 years. And then, of course, serving suffering humanity. Well, if their souls are there wasn't it was mainly focused on the spiritual task. Um, mm -hmm. So I always say it's interesting. Let me just see. We can't even get to nine things. I'm, I'm still caught on the stool. Uh, I mean, you agree with me, Steve, that that's not net. I would I would agree that probably during the first 15 years from 1865 to 1880, um, sure. that that was something that was again again there was sort of ambiguity in terms of the identity and the purpose of what this east london revival society that became a east london mission that became a right. christian mission you know that they they were sort of in the in the prototyping phase of trying to figure out who they were once they had clarity and, and they, they, there are articles that do speak about intentional training uh, particularly related to children more so right, but, right. Um, but again, most of these individuals were coming out of sort of a Methodist tradition or were highly trained Methodists that were sort of replicating that within East London and other sort of inner city type locations where they were serving throughout the U United Kingdom. Um, but I think that by the time that you get to, to 1878, um, where there are doctrines and disciplines that are put together, that there is intentional training mechanism, they continue to experiment with the form which it's going to take they i play i do see them playing around with the band system the soldiers meeting concept and other things like that what i do find very interesting is that by the early 20th century on all of the articles of war there are three pictures and those three pictures actually do depict the idea of saving people serving people and training people so right, right. so while while it might not have been poetically sort of codified i think it was tacitly present by the actions when you think about salvation for both worlds in 1889 and other things like that you know i, I do think i, I, I yeah. don't think it's as codified as gowans has made it but right i think it's just helpful to realize that even some of the uh institutional challenges that are experienced in the salvation army and other denominations we go back to the beginning sometimes it comes before that and so gowans rightly as a leader comes and says this is what the savage army should do and i'm not not debating that but i think some of the challenges that we experience even as we get eventually to talk about the sacramental question are related to these issues from the beginning now one of the things that's interesting that I've, I've thought about i've often just discarded this fact historically is that there's a movement in the naming of the organization there's like theological or ecclesiological assumptions with the names so for mm -hmm. instance the first name is association the east london revival association then yeah. it becomes the east london revival union then yeah. the east london revival society yeah. then the east london christian mission then the christian and, and mission, how quickly that journey. That was like within like months and maybe like oh, yeah, you know, sure. that, that that evolution took place because quickly in the it, it, the vision changed so quickly because there was an ideal. They threw it out there. It failed. They said that's not working. You know, there was like a what, you know, there was sort of that rapid piece till they found something that they could settle on. 
and then and then what happened is when they settled on something that was producing an impact that then created a ripple effect where people were beginning to say hey we'd like that over here and stuff like that so as it began to scale right the mm-hmm. success of this one small prototype experiment in east london scaled that's where the definition has to almost be evaluated as well and thus the naming of the organization right so like 1869 then you have this move like basically there's additional locations that are outside of east london so that's when yeah. it becomes just simply the christian mission much less yeah. like what well, by the time we get to the salvation army you know eight nine years later so but there's assumptions with this and in those early assumptions this is like mainly thinking of uh i think of the first one uh the association this is a group of people who's come together to bring the gospel certain places and this is this is where william booth much later reflects and says well we did and this is my paraphrase uh we wanted some uh, we wanted to um preach the gospel we want to send them to their churches they weren't they weren't accepted where they're sent they didn't want to go and then the third point which always gets me is he says we wanted some of them for ourselves yeah like something like in the soul saving effort like, so and iteration two <laughs> right right this is it and so, actually can, can i pause there before you go yeah. on as well the association was it doesn't matter what your theology is we're, exactly. we just want to make a difference here but when we want to keep some of them for ourselves, all of a sudden it's like we don't want to just be sort of open source on whatever your theological conviction is. We need to define the parameters, what we believe, because we actually strongly believe in this Wesleyan doctrine. Therefore, what's going to create unity around that? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and they move in that direction. So you have the, the first time you have like a real kind of constitution is 1870, 1875, 1878, like a new iterations of this but each one gets more particular theologically yeah each, like they move away from the perseverance of the saints um, yeah. and then uh, and then they add a doctrine of holiness that i'm getting the order mixed up there nevertheless like this is like the clarity and so when you start to get these type of things and they say they hunker down i say like kind of focus in mm-hmm. on a doctrine of holiness in the early movement this yeah. is where there's divisions people leave like well if that's what you're about i'm out yeah, exactly <laughs> And so I bring this up in light of the, the Gowan's stool idea. Yeah. Um, and like, I, I affirm it. I affirm it. Nevertheless, I don't know that it provides the historical foundation that we need to be able to think about the, the challenges that we experience. So just keep that in mind. Like I, the, the challenge that we have, uh, we thinking about the sacraments, thinking about polity, mm-hmm. uh, predate the idea of a three-legged stool. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, by the way, let me say this. I, I think the term society is very interesting when they yeah, say yeah. East London Revival Society. When you look at the term society that sort of came out of like Francis Bacon and, you know, the formation of groups that came together to scientifically develop theories that would then be experimented upon, you know, that that's sort of what a society was. Now, Bible societies, you know, that we see emerging in the it's the 17th and 18th centuries. Yes, yeah. And things, these groups are sort of taking that more secular concept and bringing it into the church. And so what William and Catherine Booth say is that we want a highly rigorous discipline process by which we ask the question, how might we pursue revival in the East End of London? And so that methodology driven by mission, you know, really formats a, a clear sort of, you know, sort of boundaries of what they're really trying to do. It's part of what leads to their success as well. You know, I think it's interesting that they changed from society, though, to mission then. 
because they're saying, okay, no, we've established the fact that we want to be thinking about this and experimenting and validating it. But this is about mission, which is driving towards accomplishing a, a very defined end goal. Well, they're picking up on another tradition that was going on already that had been going on for a couple of decades, the home missions groups that were yeah. around. But before that, it's such a the society. I think you're right that the use of the word society is almost generic and connected to groups like uh, um, William Carey's, um, mm -hmm. what eventually became SPCK, Society That's for right. Social Knowledge, right? Exactly. Which is still a publisher today. And John Wesley was a part, you know, he went to America with that group. So I forget what it is, like SGA, the actual group that was ahead of it. But nevertheless, like it, the use of the word society is an organized, disciplined group, like kind of like just being incorporated. But it also is connected to the um, more theological use of the term in bands and societies. Well, um, I was going to say yeah. that, that also comes from John Wesley again, yeah. where, I mean, you literally, I mean, until 1820, I think it was 1820, it might have been 1829, um, you literally couldn't have another denomination between, besides Anglicanism, officially, as the official church of... Right, of no, this is good. Yeah, that's why and he resisted so, the language church. And so the formation of other official churches, they couldn't use that term. And so the idea of a society of people that are together with a common aim was a, was was commonplace as well amongst Methodists too. Yeah, so so this is interesting, like just to think about these foundations. So as we get into these nine points, it is good. It is it's perfectly fine to think of the kind of the three-legged stool, like we, we need all of those. Yeah. Um, but historically, it might be helpful for us to like, just go back, go back a few years, go back a, a ahead of that too. So one of the, the first point that they talk about is, um, let me see if I can find it here. Oh, polity, church government. So yeah. now that we don't know what's actually said here. Now this, yeah. this is though, I believe the critical issue. And this comes in like a lot of people are suggesting that there needs to be contextualized zonal responses so that the Salvation Army in this region might view truth differently. I'm, I'm, be, I'm letting my card show here. Um, the, the society, the, the, the society, the Salvation Army in this region or the Nazarene church in this region or the uh, Methodist church here is going to look different. So let's just agree to let people disagree. And that means we're all kind of living out our truths. So um, that that's one of the political polity challenges of our of this time, but nevertheless, you have a distinct emphasis that I think is really helpful in thinking about our autocracy, our autocratic system. Yeah, and some people think that's a bad word. It sounds like yeah. totalitarian. But what do you think? What do you think yeah. is, is needed when on that side? See again, again, coming back to the historical element of why is it that we establish ourselves? Why why is it that the Christian mission became the Salvation yes. Army? Because again, and this this is something for you know again our broader audience to think about is that both the Congregationalist and the conferencing type systems historically, again, if you can use that society-based scientific process of testing and validating things, it seems that whenever there is that sort of form, there seems to be endless debate. Right. Yes. And, and often when there's a lack of alignment, you know, you end up being bottlenecked and really you can't advance forward. And so part of the frustration was uh, amongst those who were very mission driven, those who were seeking revival, you know, in the Christian missionary in that day saying we need something that is going to cut through this this confusion and create clarity and debate and say, this is who we are, 
with with clear guidelines and and to appoint somebody who is going to oversee that process in many ways John Wesley, I would say, was more of an autocrat. You know, it was the 100 who succeeded him that was far more democratic oriented. And, and I think that some of the great unity and scaling of Methodism was possibly because of that. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so when it comes to the, um, the Salvation Army today, um, there are some things that are transcendent principles. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't be up for debate and in many ways is going to be, as I said, the, the glue that holds us together. We need strong governance, ecclesiastical governance that is going to keep this together. Again, that ecclesiastical governance can translate into how we manage nonprofit services or into our corporate elements. But yeah. if it's not rooted in a robust ecclesiastical church polity, we're going to basically repeat the very problem which the Southern yeah, was exactly. created to solve. <laughs> Let me just, I've been, I've been really, this might seem very boring to some people, but yeah. my last, the last two weeks, I have just been in the constitutional deeds, the foundation deeds of the Salvation Army. And so yeah. like, uh, just for the academic work I'm doing. And so as I, I've been looking at, just to let people know, maybe remind people, maybe you already knew all this, but 1870, they set up, they set up basically like a conference system where the conference owns the reality of the church. And so everything would come to that conference. 1875, more power is given to William Booth. But at the same time in 1875, there still is a conference committee. It's mm-hmm. like it's like the president and the house and the, and the, and the Congress, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And the, the house still controls the purse strings. And so there was this lamenting that we are still spending so much time in committees and we just want to move away from that. So it's not until 1878, even before the name the Salvation Army comes along, that we have this movement to give total control. And this means not just not just control um, of personnel, of finances, but the key thing was property that they gave the property control so that William Booth could liquidate assets, sell assets, move people around. Um, And it's interesting between 1875 and 1878, the constitution in 1878 is a fourth the size. Mm -hmm. It's so much shorter. And I was thankful for that because I didn't have to read anymore. Nevertheless, like what happens in that, that is that, well, why is it shorter? They gave all the power to William Booth. And why did they give the power to William Booth? Because they are they some like mindless people? No, it has a missional purpose. Like exactly. it's like we do not want, and this is the kind of message I think for modern denominations, particularly the Salvation Army. I'm gonna pick on the Salvation Army. And this is what the global Methodist Church is trying to embrace. Cut out the administration, not, exactly. not cut their lives out. And can I add, <laughs> Andy, can I add to that, that yeah. the, they said that that person who was the general being William Booth needed to so embody the beliefs, the values, the convictions that, that they are so deep theologically and biblically in dynamic relationship with Christ, demonstrating holiness of heart, that that was with such clarity that they would say, I totally trust that he or she will do what is absolutely best for the mission of the Salvation Army, so much so that I can trust that person to, you know, in many ways to, to apostolically drive the army. So, I mean, think about what's happening, not just there, but what's happening today. People do put that trust in those organizations. This happens in other denominations too, where they're saying, I'm going to let you pick the leaders who are mm-hmm. going to move me, who are going to pick my the, my, the color of my furniture, 
yeah. you know, who are going to you uh, utilize assets like this is a huge thing. But yet, I think what you'd suggest, and I'm not sure I'm all the way there, Steve. Yeah. Um, that this model of strong control by one individual yeah. is necessary to the identity of the organization. Let me clarify something, though. I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't think that what William Booth did was just like, I'm going to control everybody. That's not what it was. I, I do believe it does. So there's in, 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 in organizational studies, there's something called organizational ambidexterity. Okay. And it's I, I actually believe that we actually have a distributed power model within the Salvation Army where governance is actually distributed down to even the smallest local level, right? But what is it that that autocratic power is for? I believe that it's around a few key things. It's our identity. It's yeah. our purpose. It is our doctrine. It is our disciplines. And then it is to protect the transcendent mission. And along with that, to coordinate the current global yes, best practices. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Everything else. That that that, no, that you're right. You're right. to be it, it's it's distributed to territory to command to to frontline you know and stuff like that and each person is a key stakeholder of a certain amount which they are empowered to fulfill so it's not about choosing what colors of you know who cares yeah, no, that's right? right yeah I'm not saying they choose that but, yeah. <laughs> but you do put the power uh, in the leader to make decisions for your life that's why I, I think it's so important but I, I it's not micromanaging like I, yeah. I find that. I, but what's interesting to me, though, is that there's this move away from committees and conference and administration to streamline. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Like, and that, that was a great, that's why after 1878, not just a name change, you know, not formally recognized till 1880, but nevertheless, like, not just that, that's why there was such extreme growth. Such, yeah. I mean, the, one of the greatest periods of growth in church history, not just yep. the Salvation Army. So. Yep. What, what was it happening at that time? There was a freedom and ease, uh, an ability to allow that mission to be guarded. And I think you, I think you highlight some really good points. So about I think the, the other what to do. The other interesting thing about that 1878 deed pool as well, and I've, I've got to find where this was because I, I read through all of them as well. I, I seem to have a problem just like you geeking out on strange things. But um, William Booth basically said that if I or anyone else in this role were to stray from the identity of yeah, the right. Army, that. that basically every ounce of money and every property that we own should be taken and given to someone or some organization that will stay true to what that is. I, I like, think that well, is radical. And then, and then he writes himself out of ever being able to change that deed pool. Now we found loopholes, you know, without, right. you know, without an act of parliament, you know, but like that was how confident they were in, in, in staying true to these doctrines and disciplines and mission. All right. Oh man. It's so tempting to go, go a little bit deeper in there. And we've only gotten to one point. Okay. I know. <laughs> uh, all right. So, but, but, but governance is a key issue. Now the second yeah. one is the salvation people, right. That they want that, that, that if there's going to be an identity marked is that it's about salvation. Well, let's well, see, what are we saved from? Saved, uh, saved from what is salvation? What does it mean to be a salvation people? We are a salvation people that are that are saved from sin, but we're saved for holiness. Amen. Right? Amen. We're saved to live for the glory of God and the salvation of the world. We're saved for happiness and holiness, right? You know, and, and, and but but I mean, again, if we're a salvation people, then we do need to talk about something called sin, right? We do need to talk about the fact that there really is a heaven and a hell. We do have to talk about the fact that repentance and faith are conditions for being justified and experiencing the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. 
Yes. And this, is, this is what it means to be a salvation people. Exactly. And along say, with that, we believe that that eternal transformation will transform your temporal reality. Amen. Amen. Right. And, and so that is what knits us together as a global and historic movement. If we shift from that, if we start coming up with other things, you know, it's like, I don't, you know, that's, that's so much less. It's, it's such a robust vision, right? Yeah, I've been interested. Uh, I, I'm making a suggestion. I'm still doing a little bit more reading to see if it's, I, might, I might change this in future years. I probably will. But I think the most dominant theological belief of William Booth, like the one that shows up the most in his writing, is his doctrine of hell. Yeah. And now, I've never really liked the way that all the articles finish with the eternal punishment of the wicked. That's our very last statement. Like, I would yeah. like to have it switch around, maybe like you could have yeah. eternal happiness of righteous. But I think that's even the prominence of that indicates how important, like an understanding of hell, like he really did believe in it. Like, I think, yeah. it's, it's, and there are plenty of other ideas, annihilationalism, conditional immortality, all kinds of things that were present. People left. The Christian yeah. mission and the Salvation Army because of William Booth's belief in hell. Like this was a, a pretty clear reality that was infused in it. I found an article too um, um, in I think 1880s, uh, Railton. It was one, one article. It's title. This is the title. More hell, exclamation point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. no, no, we're missing out. We're missing folks. We haven't had enough of this. But I mean, I'm not... I haven't been one to preach a lot about hell, like yeah. to describe it a lot. But nevertheless, like that is a part of salvation. Salvation from sin... Some willful sin, some, uh, and then also salvation to holiness. Yeah. What what I say, what I often say is this: is that you know some people say, oh, it's just all you know, like this salvation army thing. Oh, it's just a metaphor. It isn't in vogue today. It wasn't in vogue in 1878 either. You know, I just want to say, right? You know, but here's the thing: is it? I think I don't know if I've said this to you before, but like some people say, well, you know, we're just metaphorical soldiers. You know, mm. so I say if we're a metaphorical soldier, you know, fighting in a metaphorical army engage in a metaphorical salvation war yeah, are we yeah. fighting against a metaphorical enemy to save people from a metaphorical hell <laughs> well no that i think people would be glad to some people would be glad to suggest that exactly and if it's so then what what's the point then you know what let's abandon it all but if hell is real right and right, satan right. is involved in this world but that there is you know the light of the knowledge and glory of god that can transform people's lives break them from the bondage of sin and set them free and allow them to become adopted children sons and daughters of, of, of god guess what? Then we need to be involved in a real salvation war. And if we're going to be involved in a real salvation war, then guess what? We better be serious about Amen. that. Amen. And guess what? We need to live conscious of the reality that we have a time limit. There's a countdown on this generation and that basically our indifference has eternal consequences. That's what drove Catherine and William Booth. And somehow today we have sidelined that. And as a result of that, you know, we have a spirit of apathy that that creates an identity confusion, a values confusion, and people spend all sorts of time wrestling with the very things that William E. Catherine Booth said yeah. is what people who don't care really do. And yeah. if you go back to his who cares vision, we find ourselves in the clubhouse busy with all sorts of things except what Christ has actually called us to do. I think the idea of the, um, uh, I love the point on the metaphor um, and then how that connects, as you said, like to the identity pieces of why we exist. I think it's good always to drive yourself back to that. But you're right. It's not a metaphor. I, I like the language image. It's an image of what we do. Like we, this is a picture 
that helps us think about who we are called to be mm. in the world. Um, yeah. So we are, we have an image of it, but like I said, it's not a, a, a metaphor, like it, it, the metaphor be, it might've been a metaphor, but the metaphor has express, expresses its own reality. Yeah. Living into. Can, can I, can I read this? This, this yeah, is actually sure. from John I Wesley. Think. You know, we, we will talk about, maybe we'll talk about sort of John of time. But yeah. listen to this, Wesley says this, he says, for this very reason, the adversary so rages whenever salvation by faith is declared to the world. For this reason, did he stir up earth and hell to destroy those who first preached it? You know, and then he talks about Luther, right? And, and, and he says, and for the same reason, knowing that faith alone could overturn the foundations of his kingdom, he did call all his forces and employ all his art and lies of calumny to affright the, that glorious champion of the Lord of hosts, Martin Luther, from reviving it. And then he says, you know, that, um, let me just this, he says, thou shalt prevail over him and subdue him and overthrow him and trample him under thy feet. Thou shalt march on under the great captain of mm -hmm. thy salvation, conquering and to conquer until all thine enemies are destroyed and until death is swallowed up in victory. That's John Wesley. That's not William Catherine. Yes. Right. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's that what it that? means salvation people. That's from salvation by faith. Oh yeah. That's not the first sermon. So, um, yep. first of the standard that's sermon. His evangelical manifesto. Yeah, sure. Uh, man, Steve, this is great. We have to hold on to this now. I'm gonna I'm gonna go through these other ones. I'm we can group some them. of these. Let me read the rest of them, and then we might not get to all of them. Yeah. The, these kind of non uh, non negotiables: this mission statement, the dual ministry, a personal and social action, um, personal salvation and social action, women in ministry, military metaphor. We talked about that sacramental position, our Wesleyan theology. That's it. So those, these yeah. are the kind of the, the key points. So we might not get to all of those. I think it, and the ninth should, one is culturally assimilated that we're contextualizing the gospel. Oh, right, right. Yeah. That's something we'll get there. OK, so uh, the mission statement, I think it's helpful to, to keep in mind like this. There, some people might see it as kind of a clunky language occasionally, um, yeah. but there's something about it that still connects in a beautiful way that to, uh, it gets the name of Jesus in there. Right. Yeah. And it has it has holistic ministry connected. Now I imagine that even if you and I took a took a day, we might be able to come up with a bang up mission statement. Like no doubt about it. But I I like this one message based upon the Bible, ministry motivated by love of God, mission to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and meet human needs in His name without discrimination. There's something about this is really really clear. And I'm if I could, I'm not I have zero authority anymore. But I would want to fight for that mission statement. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's what, uh, what we would call a pincer strategy as well. You know, preaching the gospel and meeting human need in Jesus name. It's that temporal and eternal component. And you don't have an option to choose one or the other. Right. The, yeah, the yeah. gospel isn't just about one or the other. We're not Gnostics and we're not, you know, functional atheists. We are we're salvation people who wants to see the whole person saved. Yeah, and yeah. so that, that is a very Wesleyan concept, I would argue. Acts of piety, acts of mercy, working in tandem together to accomplish the mission. Now, I, I will say I have noticed that occasionally people, um, uh, some groups, I think I saw this from Australia, in a, when they moved towards a um, using the, I, I don't know what the name of the flag is, but it includes all the colors of the rainbow, including like the transgender flag, the gay pride flag, and other flags that I don't know. Um, and it had that on there, maybe something too related to uh, people, uh, native folks from that area. 
on that mission statement, though, they they added like a few words, like preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and meet human needs in his name with love and without discrimination. I don't know if you've seen that. I can I can share a link to that. Um, so like they add the word with love, right? And I'm not not opposed to that at all, but also I think mission statement's a mission statement, right? It'd be very easy to take out the words preach the gospel. It'd be easy to take out the words Jesus name, like preach yeah, with so I want I just want to be cautious. Uh, and, and that's where I do think that we have to teach into the why behind our mission statement. Mm-hmm. And this is where I would I would come back to even understanding Wesleyan theology. And that is something that is that I think I think of all the things which Commissioner Horwood hit. I mean, I think, you know, you know, one to nine, you know, yes, yes, yeah, we can work through those. But I think eight is actually the pins, you know, that's it's the it's the most it's the clincher, I would say, you know, number eight, the, mm-hmm. you know. The distinctive understanding or Wesleyan theology is, I think, the right, most right. critical agenda item because I don't think we actually understand what that really means. And let me say this, this, this will extend to the broader uh, audience here, is I don't think that a lot of Wesleyans who, who, are, li- who are around today really understand what no, Wesleyan theology is because just because something comes out of a Wesleyan institution, now maybe not Wesley Biblical Seminary. Thank you very right? much. Yes. I'm going to clarify that, right? But just because something comes out of a, uh, a, an academic institution that would reference its origin as being Wesleyan does not necessarily mean that it has any connection to the, the, to the teachings of John Wesley. And I think that that's fiercely problematic, let alone the teachings of, of a scriptural way of salvation. And right. so I do think that we need not just clarity in the Salvation Army, I think in the broader Wesleyan holiness movement, we need clarity as to what is and what is not Wesleyan theology. Yeah, this is helpful. And I can point people back to a document that I was privileged to be a part of that was produced last, last year, year called The Faith Once for All Delivered. And it was a group of 60 Wesleyan scholars who came together and like worked through several theological distinctives and just kind of find what that is. Now, here's one thing that's important. And like, this was the tension within the group, at least in my subgroup um, that was led by Ken Collins is that, uh, and I, so I was a part of the group that talked about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And it was, a, it was a great honor to be there. But one of the tensions we experienced was that we can historically describe what John Wesley thought and did but that's not that's that wasn't actually a task like the task was to promote this and define it for today because there might be ways that john wesley was wrong there could have been an emphasis there so when we talk about wesleyan theology yeah we find this source there that points us back to scripture that points us to the rich tradition of the church um and so like that's that's the foundation of it and it's a part like when we talk about wesleyan theology there are key emphases that have been um produced and have been developed through a variety of traditions. So I think there are some key things that we keep in mind with that. What do you feel like, Steve? You know, there are, there are various, um, I was surprised to some international gatherings I went to with the, in the Salvation Army. Some people will say, well, I'm not a Wesleyan Salvationist. They'd say, I'm, I'm more of a Lutheran Salvationist, right? Yeah. Coming from a Nordic yeah. context. Yeah. Um, some others are like, well, you you guys, some, and some, I won't say where this came from, and say, well, you guys in America, you think you're, you think the Salvation Army is Wesleyan, he said. Yeah. But, but I'm we're we're more kind of like an Anglican feel to, yeah. to who we are feel. So what is it? What is the um, concern that you have 
with yes. not what's missed when we don't emphasize the Wesleyan side of the Salvation Army? Well, I, I would say, I mean, and again, you know, part, part, maybe maybe this is a good point to introduce as well the concept of sword and shield. So yeah, sure. we started a group out as sort of like a study lab um, called Sword and Shield. And it's a group that sort of meets together. Um, we meet online once a week. We're actually working, we're using Ken Collins and Jason Vickers, the sermons of John Wesley, and reading it in tandem to Catherine and William Booth's writings, Brengle, you know, George Scott Railton and others. Um, and what we're doing is as we're systematically, and I love as well how they have Collins Vickers have really restructured Wesley sermons in the via salutis process, because it gives sort of almost like a Lego block a week, which you're building on to see the logic of Wesley, right? But as we begin to read Catherine and William Booth alongside Wesley, we realized that Catherine and William Booth were sort of writing and the they, 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 had, they were speaking in code. And unless you really understand Wesley, which is like the decoder ring of the booths, you don't really understand how biblical and, and how like theologically integrated some of what they were saying is. And so I, I think that as salvationists, to have a more robust understanding of who we are, we need to understand us within this larger context. Now, let me add this as well, that to, to, to your point, uh, it, it, which the group was talking about last year, is that you know, in our contemporary culture, just as if we were, you know, to take the, the gospel to, you know, a different part of the world, we would, and we would need to talk about the contextualization of theology, yeah. that, 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 that we have to have conversation of how do we contextualize Wesleyan thinking and theology in a way that it, that it is speaking in a relevant way to the, to the practical, ethical, you know, you know, sort of, context of this present moment but in a way that does not drift or or cultivate syncretism in terms of the gospel or syncretism even in terms of what would define us say on, on a second triage level of of being wesleyans and yeah. so i do think that there's a rigorous process of how that translates to culture but there is something that is wesleyan and is not wesleyan and if we then stray from what that is if we just sort of say hey it's a you know we're going to reduce things down to a lowest common denominator theology of just you know just love jesus and just you know the rest is a theological choose your own adventure right. then at that point what we end up doing is we we actually introduce illogic into not just our orthodoxy but into our orthopraxy and inevitably we're like fish out of water that are having an identity crisis. That's yeah. sort of saying, why do I have these gills and why do I have these fins and why do I have this tail? You know, well, right. because we're not operating in our natural ecosystem in our natural habitat. It you will know, be when very they, when confusing. You connect the Salvation Army to Wesleyan theology that everything actually does make sense. That's right. I love the idea. You said at the very beginning, like a decoder ring, like that. Yeah. Like you honestly can't understand the articles of faith, the writings of the booths, or even our history, um, uh, other writers in our history, without understanding uh, some of the language of Wesley. Like if you read Wesley, even if you just like picked up and um, you, you join the Sword and Shield group, right? Um, yep. And you go through the standard sermons of Wesley, you're going to have some clarity and that will provide you insight into probably like the, the makeup of, of who the institution is. And this will be true for every every group is and i think of my friends who are in the emerging global methodist church like this is a key time for you to think like 
hmm, if being a Methodist mean that I'm not Baptist and that I happen to live on this side of town, or is it is being a Methodist mean that I'm, you know, somewhere between liturgically between Catholic and Baptist? Like, yeah. like many of my friends are working through this, like as people are, churches are seeking to disaffiliate or they're voting on whether or not they'll separate from the United Methodist Church. They're having to define, like, what does it mean? Like, it's interesting, like as a Salvationist, I would come in occasionally to Methodist churches, to present on the Salvation Army. And I would, I've, when I first started my ministry, I would like, as a as an officer, I would come in and I'd say, of course, with John Wesley. And I realized maybe they knew a little bit about John Wesley, but there was a significant lack of knowledge about yeah. what was going on. So it's not necessarily connected to this theological foundation. And I think that that's a, like, when we think about what evangelicalism is, historically mm -hmm. and theologically when we yeah. think about what wesleyanism is when we think about what the salvation army is historically and theologically those are the reasons that we stick in and unfortunately what happens is we will take the cultural expressions of what any of these groups are and maybe it's like we dress like this and that's in the yeah. salvation army too right like we yeah. we dress we have music like this that's what makes us up the brass bands that's what makes us up no 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 like uh, let's not just let the cultural things because what happens then exactly. is that when we let the cultural things direct us we get in a situation where we are now as it relates to the doctrine of revelation and creation with yep. human sexuality where we're willing to say hey well let's just agree to disagree on these things yep. and what, what's crazy is that when we actually define ourselves by form than by essence we immediately become archaic we, we immediately cease to be relevant, even if we're relevant for a second, because that's about how long you can be trendy in these days, right? right? You know, and I think there's a difference between being trendy and being relevant. Relevant is properly communicating what your yes. mission is from being trendy. But I think I think there's a lot of us that are chasing after trends or even holding on to an old form and then and sort of throwing the baby out with the bathroom, as we've discussed in the past. The problem with that, then, is you inevitably have no North Star. You have no guiding compass. I, I think in this day and age, which is, uh, you know, they, there's a term VUCA environment. Have you ever heard that term before? No, I'm sorry. The, the U.S. Yeah. military introduced it um, out of uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania, the War College in Pennsylvania. Uh, they said VUCA stands for a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environment. Mm. And I would say that we are in a theologically VUCA environment these days, right? An ethically VUCA environment where there is a lot of ambiguity in terms of, you know, there's nobody who's sort of saying, hey, you grew up, you know, as a Christian, I'm going to reinforce that. As a result of that, often we can then just simply out of stress, just become reactive rather than proactive. And I think Tim Tennant, we talked about this before, where, you know, sometimes we look at the Salvation Army and we say, well, you're just always talking about what you're against, but what are you mm -hmm. actually for? Right. If you don't have a North Star, if you don't have a, a clarity in terms of identity and purpose, you're never going to be on the, you know, you're never going to be able to say, no, actually with strong conviction and with grace, right? right? right. When you're reactive, you know, it comes off angry. When you're proactive, because you know what you're for, you can say to a person, I absolutely love you, you know, and, yeah. and, and I don't care, you know, what your background is. If you find yourself in the cleft of the rock of Jesus grace by repentance and faith, you can be saved and you can be a brother or sister who's part of the kingdom of God. <laughs> Debate's over. Yeah, sure. And so we need to know who we're for. 
if we're going to find any stability in the midst of the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Yeah, and what we're for, hopefully, is about evangelism, right? Preaching the yeah. gospel of Jesus Christ. And, yeah. and this is like being being a salvation people, as we said earlier. But here's the challenge is like uh, organizations just so so quickly, and uh, not quickly, but over time, get to a place where they move to self-preservation yeah. that it it gets to be so we so distant from the actual work. It's like these educational institutions like Stanford. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen these numbers myself, but that there's 15,000 administrators and 14,000 students. Uh, mm -hmm. So like, that's a real problem. And if yeah. the emphasis isn't on the local expression of the local facilitation of the mission, facilitation of the mission, that's where there gets to be a problem. Okay, I'm going to jump you to, to we're not, we, we need a whole podcast on this, but they also <laughs> add in their sac or sacramental position. Um, yeah. I think like historically, they're in really tough shape there, Steve, to be able to include that as something that's absolutely needed. Boy, I look at all these baptisms, communion services that, man, they were doing great work. Why, why would we leave this great thing? So- I, I I really struggle with that. I think that if uh, and and having now attended uh, some other churches, um, man, it is weird. The the tradition of the Salvation Army is missing yeah. out on a real blessing to be able to come face to face with the body and blood of Jesus on a regular basis in a historically consistent way that's consistent with Scripture and well, the entirety of the Christian tradition, except for this one little sliver known as the Salvation Army that likes this uniqueness. Let, so, let me take this, and I know you're going to maul me because of this, but when I read um, John Wesley's The Means of Grace and the Duty sure. of Constant Communion. Oh, no, um, yeah. I, I think that, that that we have to differentiate the means from, you know, the, the, the heart of what that is. There is the form which is necessary, right? Uh, you know, but I think, again, that there can be multiple modalities by which we, we, we practice sacramental living. You know, I don't want to get into a whole debate on oh, this. No, no, I'm fine. Right? Like, you can still and have I, sacramental living and do this and perform the sacraments. But 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 yeah yeah and 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 the the bottom line is 1883 we've discussed I, we've discussed this offline stuff like this before but there's room to debate it you know and and I think again you know to me what I want to get right first is yeah. that we are remembering Christ and that we are publicly declaring Christ you know Amen. Uh, right now if if we are and not just remembering what christ did but i think also wesley says in the duty of constant communion close uh, constant communion and and the means of grace is that we don't just remember back to what christ did but that we are testifying to the work that he is presently doing right mm -hmm. if if we don't get that right and we introduce a form you know, it's just, oh, no, it has to function like, it, yeah, it, it has to function. And but that's I where like the, the experience of the encounter of heart religion is what we have got. I think that is the issue which we got to get right first, you know, and yeah, so, well, you know, it can help you with that some forms can escort you into that reality really easily. <laughs> the means of grace. I, like, I, I feel like they're there. Like there's, there's just a wisdom of the universal church that, that, that has been expressed with that for centuries and i think there's something to this like that i don't i don't particularly love it that the classic definition of the church is where the word is preached and the sacraments are duly administered or, or yeah. discipline is upheld like like yeah. I, I always chided against that because i didn't like not being being called a church but at yeah. the same time like i think 
well, maybe there's some reasons that this is put in place. And there are like, what do you think of those reasons? Oh, I would love to tell you. <laughs> That's uh, a whole other podcast. We need yeah, to have a podcast uh, just on this topic. I, I think like saying what we, by de- defining ourselves by what we don't do, I think is very problematic. And I don't think we, you and I have already spent 45 minutes talking about distinctives and we've never brought this up. If yeah. we think, as some have said, this is our, our birthright, yeah. that it, it, of course it wasn't a part of our birth, first of yeah. all, uh, yeah. not, 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 not only that, but I think my, my bigger concern, Steve, yeah. um, is not just the connection to the universal church, though that's important, yeah. is that this sets us up for poor exegetical work, like our poor interpretation of scripture. Um, and I, I think, yeah, you can kind of find a way just barely to redefine a few terms to make it work. But like what this leads to is like um, this, this, this is kind of a, a liberal hermeneutic that we use. I would, get- I would argue though, that the form which we practice in most churches today is more based upon a con- recontextualized Roman expression of sacrament than a Hebraic expression of sacrament. I mean, uh, again, you know, we're not, you know, when we talk about what is it that we're supposed to do, exactly what do we mean? Because already if there's a contextualization of the means. Right, right. Then, then what does it mean to properly exegete what that means? Because well, if you're saying we need to be exegetically accurate, then you better be practicing. Positive. I'm not talking about the form, but it's certainly, Steve, like the big thing is do it. It doesn't say actually yes. like, uh, okay, we might we might struggle with how to do it, but maybe we just- Constant it, communion. That's, Constant. Well, that's part of it, but there is something to the actual physical form, the physical taking in- Of um, wine? The, the substance of the substance like i'm good with i'm good with any I, i've only done the wine once as a, as a good salvationist like i've uh, only one time have i had alcohol and that was in a anglican church when it, i, I, I had the same experience in a lutheran church and i and i i destroyed that whole you know sacramental moment because i was coughing on the floor <laughs> oh bless you i was a, i was able to get mine down i don't know <laughs> there we go good uh, Essentially, like I, I, I know you and I aren't going to solve it today, and and people have asked us to do a whole podcast on this, and we're running out of time here. So, yeah. essentially, I would say don't make this a part unless it's don't make it part of the identity piece. I think the yeah. biggest thing that's going to need, and let's just pivot now, like talk about the High Council. Like the High Council yeah. uh, is a group of people who are coming together to elect a general who will uphold the vision, theology, and direction of the international movement. If that's the case, like that person's going to, like the biggest question they have to answer is related to human sexuality and biblical authority. And one thing that's missing from the Horowood statement is anything about scripture. Now it's assumed or implied in the mission statements, it's assumed and implied in the fact we're Salvation Army people. But I think that has to be at the forefront of probably, and I'd encourage those, maybe there'll be some listening to this who will be a part of the High Council, that to ensure those questions are asked, there needs yeah. to be clarity. And look, if, if the High Council votes to say, guess what, we don't we don't think this is important to elect somebody who's going to hold uh, present a clear vision uh, going forward. We think the current general has done a pretty good job with that. If if they're not going to do that, then it'll give some of us an opportunity to leave. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say this. I I do believe, and I've said this openly to several people. I do believe that this is probably the most important high council in the history of the Salvation Army. 
There you go. Wow. More so than 1929, more so than at any other point, because I do believe we were at a strategic inflection point um, and, and that the person who's appointed to this, um, that, that, uh, that we cannot be ambiguous on, on what is non-negotiable, you know, and, and, and that's where I would agree with you that an emphasis upon, you know, scripture, what do we mean by that? Um, along with that, uh, we need people, it, you know, again, going back to what we were discussing about who William Booth was, was a person who embodied the spirit of salvationism, who was living out the scriptural way of salvation that was manifesting those consistent qualities that we saw in Wesley and Whitfield and Luther and Catherine William Booth and others who have been part of that being on the track of the old apostles, we need to see that first and foremost, if that is not the prime evaluative test of who is good, who's going to be our leader, then we're in trouble. Look at, we need, we do need things like innovation. We do need things like reimagining who we are. We need, you know, to, to wrestle through sort of a, a lot of sort of, you know, complex issues and things like that. We're entering into a digital age and there's all sorts of things that maybe we need to wrestle through political elements and stuff like this. Yes, those competencies are important, but if the person has not mastered first things, we're, we're in serious trouble. Yeah, I mean, this is a time, of course, for us to really pray for that leadership change, um, but also at the same time, there's opportunity to encourage there to encourage your, your leaders, uh, mm -hmm. particularly those who will participate in that high council this coming summer. I think unless something happens, it's going to happen um, to really get to and, and encourage people to provide clarity to the organization. Now, this is where it's not a pure democracy. It'd be great if there were um, uh, you, you and I might disagree a little bit on this. Like, I don't I'm not sure the autocratic system is entirely necessary. I don't not sure what we have right now is as effective either. But like, I would love for there to be more democratic impulses within the organization as a whole. I mean, it's there. The High Council is a modified semi-autocraxis, but everybody's picked by the you know, previous sets of leaders. So it would be great if uh, people could just try to influence those people to ensure the mission is upheld. So pray for them, but also they say, hey, here's a few questions you could, you could ask. That might not be a bad thing to propose. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't think you need to have a democratic system necessarily to do that. I, no, I, no, 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 no. I'm saying what we should do right now. I, yeah, I, I'm critiquing the system. At yeah, long. yeah. I, I would like. I would say that there is there is I think every person can, you know, because each territorial leader will be the representative of their territory. And right. so, you know, you can, first of all, we need to pray for our territorial leaders around yes. the world as they, as they prayerfully consider, you know, um, who's going to be the next person to, to step into that critical role in the Salvation Army. But you can write to your TC and say, I'm praying for you. And, you know, I'm praying that these will be essential things that, that are considered yeah, you know, sure. in the process. So I, I do think that that can take place for sure. You could even say, if you'd like any suggestions for questions, uh, I'll be glad to give them to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there might be a letter coming from me. I don't know. I will see. See yeah, what happens. Great. That's, That's great. great. Well, Steve, uh, like, tell us a, a little bit. Uh, where can people find Sword and Shield? So if you, uh, it's on, it's on Facebook. But what we're, what we've done is we've just um, because it, it's not sort of. 
it's a, it is really sort of a laboratory group. It, they, you know, w- w- there's nothing controversial in there. We are literally studying Wesley and the Boos, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you want to send me or my wife Sharon, Stephen Bussey or Sharon Bussey, a message on Facebook and say, "Hey, can you send me an invitation to Sword and Shields?" and we'll send that out to you. And you, you can go in and a- anything which is there as well. Like we develop resources, infographics on the sermons of Wesley and the Boos and others and scripture passages and quotes and stuff like that. Any of that stuff you can take and you can sort of share on your social media if you want to yeah. and things like that. So you can use it in a, a in a class meeting or in a in a Bible study or a small group or anything like that. So um, really we just try to do a resource that can help the broader broader community. Yeah, and it's not it's not just for those in the Salvation Army too, right? I mean, you you'd be able to have other folks come in because yep. all these resources are things that are from this broader tradition. Exactly, exactly. So it could be relevant. So, yeah, just reach out to us if you want to. Yeah, th- Steve, thanks so much for coming on. All right, I just I set us up at some point here for a, at least two more podcasts probably this year, but we'll <laughs> we'll figure out we'll we'll have to do the full out sacramental thing. We we need to come up with some guidelines too so we stay on track. But um. <laughs> It's good. It's good conversation and I always enjoy it. So thanks so much for coming along, Steve. All right. Thanks. Bless you, Andy. <laughs>